following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, today marks the the last day we'll be uh, doing our What's Up on Sunday series. Um, I I hope that it's been helpful to you. It has been for me, actually, personally. I've been challenged myself and just thinking about realizing, better realizing the importance of things like communion and baptism. Um, also to the need for corporate prayer, more of it. Too, I've been challenged and encouraged just in thinking through and talking about the purpose of singing and, and how to listen to, to sermons and how to approach God's Word. And, you know, when I introduced this series back in August, I introduced it by posing several questions to you. Questions about uh, why do we do what we do when we gather together on Sundays? And, and how are we supposed to do it? What does God want? I asked several questions like those, but there was one question that I asked back then that I haven't yet really answered. And that question is, why do we gather together on Sunday? Why is it this day in particular, the day that we gather for corporate worship? Why Sunday? Many would say because Sunday is, that's the tradition that's been handed down to us, that that we gather together on Sunday because that is traditionally what the church Jesus Christ does. And If you look back in history, you would find that it didn't come just from the Reformation. Some think that it did, but the Reformers encouraged and affirmed Sunday as a time for corporate gathering. But actually, it stretches back well before them. We see it confirmed in the early church fathers, Augustine in the early 400s. Eusebius acknowledges it, mentions it in the early 300s. Origen in the early 200s. I've mentioned one church father Justin Martyr a few times in this series and he wrote uh, one of the first writing the first writing we have of him he wrote others but the first I think that we have that, that we have now is the first apology he was a Christian apologist and he wrote this in chapter 57 and this was in around 155 AD he says this on the day called Sunday all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president, that's the the one presiding over their time together, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. And when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And then they who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit, and what is collected is deposited with the president who helps the orphans and widows and those who, through sickness or any other cause, are in want. Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly. You know, those words encouraged me a lot because I thought about, here's almost 1,900 years ago, the people of God, the people of Christ are gathering together doing what we're still doing today. It may have looked a little different. Uh, you know, maybe the structure they were coming to wasn't quite as large. How they got here would have been quite different. Uh, but just the fact that things that they participated in when they gathered together are things that we still do almost 2,000 years later. Now that writing from Justin Martyr was about 60 years after the last Apostle John. But there was another writing, the Didache, which was even closer to perhaps even written toward the end of the New Testament era perhaps even when John was still alive. And it also notes that the church gathered as a regular habit on Sundays 
for corporate worship. But even before that, we see the church gathering on Sunday. Acts 20 verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began speaking to them, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And so we see here in Acts 20, the the church gathering together, and Paul, when he had visited, was proclaiming the word to them and proclaiming the scriptures. And that was the time, if you remember, where a young man named Eutychus learned a very, very important lesson that you never fall asleep in church. You remember he was the guy sitting in the windowsill and he nodded off and he nodded off in the wrong direction, right out the window, three stories down. Fortunately, Paul was there, was able to resuscitate him. But, uh, you know, lesson learned, right? There's an application point for you right there. Folks in the balcony are now moving their way downstairs here. We also see 1 Corinthians 6.1. Paul refers to them gathering together the first day of the week. If you remember, that's when he had instructed them to bring, have a collection to be made for the saints in Jerusalem. And he said, basically, the implication is on the first day of the week, they were to gather, implying that that's when they were, were spending time with one another. And so we see this tradition of meeting on Sunday. It, it finds its roots all the way back in the early church, in the times of the New Testament. But still the question is Why? Why did they settle on Sunday? Why did they not keep with the a traditional day of the Sabbath, the last day of the week when God's people would gather? Why, why did they make a change? Why switch it as a day for corporate worship? Now, the church, the New Testament church, is not uh, bound to keeping the Sabbath, but that was still a time when God's people had, had this habit of gathering together, but they changed it to Sunday. Now, why is that? Can you think of anything in particular that might have happened on a Sunday that that may have influenced their thinking? That's right, the resurrection. The resurrection. Justin Martyr, in what I just read, he said at the end of what I read, Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. Now, we're not commanded in the New Testament, to gather specifically on Sunday. Actually, we're commanded to be together all the time. But the, the, the gathering together on Sunday, though it isn't a command, there, there is something special about this day. There is something significant. Because it's the day that revealed Jesus as Lord and Messiah, right? It's the day that showed that His sacrifice for sin was accepted by the Father. It was accepted because we know, because the Father raised Him from the dead. It's the day that death was abolished, that Satan's power was destroyed, that that sin's hold on us was broken. Because it was the day our Savior emerged from the tomb alive. In fact, Revelation 1 verse 10 calls Sunday the Lord's day, Jesus' day. And the fact that the early church chose Sunday as a a time of corporate worship and and chose Sunday as referring to it as the Lord's Day, I think that speaks something very clearly to us. That as we gather together, if we are God's children, if we are the brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ, we gather for Him. We gather for Jesus Christ. We gather together to, to exalt Him, to honor Him. We gather together so that we're encouraged to live for Him. Especially during the week, we gather together to lift up His name and to be renewed and re-energized, recharged in our relationship with Him. We gather to worship Him. We call Sunday a time of corporate worship for a reason. All that we do together, 
we gather together in particular, we can't lose sight. This is the Lord's day. This is his day. Every day is Jesus' day. We understand that, right? But again, there's something significant and special when all of his people gather with one another in honor of him, to worship him. And I hope that as we've been considering these various topics in our series and aspects of what we do together on Sundays, the baptism at times and communion and corporate prayer, fellowship with one another, singing, listening to his word. I hope that you've been asking yourself, why is it that you are here? Why is it that you come? Is it for Jesus? Or is it just this is my normal Sunday habit? Is it for Jesus or is it for social interaction with others? Is it for Jesus or because your parents are making you or because your spouse is making you come? They give you that morning guilt trip. Are you coming, honey? Is that why you're here? Is it for Jesus or for an emotional lift? Is it for Jesus or for religious experience? You know, there's something about being in a church. It's really I like. Is it for Jesus or to earn points with God? Is it for Jesus or you fill in the blank? What is it for? Who is it for? Why why are you here? Have you truly come to sing to Christ? Have you truly come to pray in his name, to to give in honor of him and for his work, to, to hear and apply his word, to fellowship with others around that relationship with Jesus? Is, is today really about him? Is it really for him? It's really the Lord's day. Christ, your focus. And it's with those questions in mind, I'd like us to turn to Philippians. Paul's letter to the Philippians. For I, I think that there are few who can really focus our attention on Jesus better than our brother Paul. It's from his letter to the Philippians. We'll see what a Christ-focused life of worship, what that really looks like. It's only a few weeks ago we were in Philippians. Uh, uh, on that message that I had on giving, we were in Philippians chapter 4. And, and if you remember, Paul was in fact prompted to write to the Philippians because of a gift. Because of a gift they had given to him while he was in prison. And so he writes to express his gratitude. And indeed, that's the tone in the letters, really one of gratitude, one of joy, right? Joy is mentioned often. In fact, Philippians 4, four has that often repeated recited passage rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice right paul refers to joy or to rejoicing uh, over 15 times in this letter but what's driving his joy what is it that that is encouraging him to have that joy is it simply because of the gift that they had sent him is it because he was so encouraged the fact that they had thought about him and and cared for him while he was in prison How could he be so joyful even in the midst of difficult circumstances? Again, he had been imprisoned for more than a couple of years by this point. Chained to a Roman guard 24-7. Dependent on others to provide for his food, for his clothing, and for his needs. How is it that even in the midst of that, he could have such joy? And be encouraging the believers that he's writing to to have joy. Well, we get an idea right from the beginning of the letter. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1 of Philippians. There he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So what what is it that gave him joy as he remembered them in prayer? He says in prayer with joy. He says in view of or because of what? 
Notice it there, right? Their participation in the gospel. He says, even from the very first day, the day of their conversion, they were telling others about Christ. And he says, and that is what has given me joy. That is what is encouraging me. Go down to verse 12, where he speaks about his circumstances. He says, and I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Notice here, Paul, the word joy isn't in those specific words that I just read, but that's definitely the tone. He's definitely encouraged. He's saying, even in my present circumstances, even in this, I am so encouraged. And why? What was he encouraged about? What was he saying here? The gospel's going forth unhindered. And in fact, even in my imprisonment, I think it's fueling the spread of the gospel. And in that he found encouragement. It caused it to spread. Spread by those who were doing it with good motives and even those who were doing it out of bad motives in regards to Paul. He mentions that in verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking it caused me distress in my imprisonment. What then, or, or what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Again, we see his joy being expressed here. He repeats it. If he could put exclamation points, they didn't have that in the original text, but they'd be there with lots of them because Paul's saying, I'm rejoicing in this. Even those who are preaching Christ from bad motives, wanting to harm me if, in some weird way, he's saying there are those preaching from goodwill, those preaching from bad motives, but they're sharing the right message. And that message is what? What was going forth? They're proclaiming the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what brought him joy. That is what encouraged him. Despite his imprisonment, he was seeing a a greater expansion of the gospel. He was seeing the word that Christ had died for sinners going forth in much more powerful ways, despite the fact he was confined. And think about that. He was looking beyond his circumstances, wasn't he? In fact, he was seeing his circumstances very differently. This is a good lesson for us. Beloved, thinking about this, the situations that God brings in your life, sometimes it's hard to see beyond those walls around you that you've been trapped in, the jail that it feels like you're in because of trials. But think about, are you thinking about how God might be using them to spread Christ? Paul saw that, and he rejoiced in that. And he bursts out of the gate in this first chapter with with joy, joy that the message of the cross was being proclaimed That it was spreading, not just in spite of, but actually being fueled by his imprisonment. And Paul, he's seeing the gospel go everywhere, right? He says that even it's infiltrated into this, the elite Praetorian guard. And then later, he mentions Caesar's own household was being impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says here, everyone else, everybody's hearing about it. So he rejoices. But still go back a little bit further why does that bring him joy why does that spreading of the gospel encourage him 
What is it about the spread of the good news of Jesus that causes him to rejoice? Was it because he then realized, okay, my message is being vindicated? Or, you know, this is a relief for me. I'm in prison. I'm not, it's not for nothing. Is he so joyful because he likes the fame that it brings him? Is he just thinking about the reward he will receive? And that's what is bringing about his joy. Well, look at verse 19. That's where he answers it for us. He says, Therefore I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And you know these words. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We see here, source of his joy part of it is based on the fact that he mentions here his deliverance i don't think he's speaking primarily from prison though that could be a part of it but he says later by my body by death or by life so he's not sure if he's getting out or not but he says here i will still through your prayers by power of spirit be delivered and i think this idea of a of a vindication a salvation that that god will vindicate him whether he stays in the pokey or he's out whether he's alive or dead God will deliver him if he's in chains or not. His focus here again, it, it's not on his circumstances. He's not looking at his, his chains or the guard and keeping his focus there. He doesn't have tunnel vision on this, but he sees beyond it. He sees beyond his circumstances and he sees what he's doing within those circumstances and how God is using them, how his life is spent and what it is focused on. And here, Paul uses the language of worship. As he expresses this, that what is ultimately at the heart of his rejoicing, we see it at the end of verse 20. In that worship language where he says, Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. That word exalted there, be exalted, has this idea of, of to make great, to, to enlarge, to magnify, glorify. And here Paul is saying that the desire of the worshiper of his heart and the worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ is that Jesus would be made great through his life and through his death. That he would be glorified through him or through her. And to glorify Christ, to, to make him great, that doesn't mean that we're doing something for him that he doesn't already have. To make him great isn't talking about us giving him something that he doesn't have. To glorify God doesn't mean that he needs more glory, that there's not enough around him. He's perfectly glorious as he is now, as he has been in eternity past and will be forever. This idea of, of making him great or glorifying him uh, is really, I like how the New King James translated this. They said that Christ will be, be magnified in my body. John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, I think he gives a very helpful illustration of this, of what it means to magnify. And he, he does it by describing two instruments that magnify things, a microscope and a telescope. And those magnify, but very differently, right? Because a microscope magnifies something that is very small and makes it to appear large, right? Right? If you ever did that in science class, chemistry in high school or junior high, right? You're looking through that thing and Ooh, there's, what is that? what's that stuff I'm drinking? That's in my water. Oh, right? You see these little things moving around? They look huge. That's what a microscope does. But a telescope is very different, isn't it? 
It takes something that is already massive and large and just helps us to see how massive and large it really is. It's not magnifying it in the sense of making it bigger like a microscope. It is showing us just how big it really is. And that's the idea in magnifying Christ. To magnify Jesus doesn't mean that we're making him more magnificent. We are just revealing through our lives and how he's using us how magnificent he really is. See the difference? The telescope takes a brilliant, majestic, massive galaxy, one that we cannot see with our naked eye, but allows us to see it. And when Christ is glorified through us, it allows those around you to see him. Paul's saying here, do do you know what really fuels my joy? Do you know what it is that, that brings me great excitement? Do you understand what thrills my heart? He said, it's when Christ is magnified. It's when I'm a telescope for Jesus. When he is glorified in my body, in my life, whether, whether I'm dead or alive. If alive, his gospel was spread either by me or by somebody else. Right now, God's even using my imprisonment, he says, to further the good news of Jesus. He says, but if I end up dying, well, if I die as a martyr for the sake of the gospel... And notice he had said his imprisonment for the sake of Christ. If I die because of this, people will know I gave my life for Jesus. And that will magnify him because in my suffering, I'm showing Jesus is worthy of this. As I'm going through these struggles, being persecuted for him, having all these trials in my life, I'm showing that Jesus is precious enough to endure these things for, even to die for. Beloved, this... This is what a Christ-centered life of worship looks like. This is what it looks like to live as Christ and to die as gain. It it says that use me, God, in whatever way you see fit. Whatever way that would magnify Christ. Whatever way that would bring him glory. Whatever way that would show the world just how wonderful he is. And that thought, that attitude, that desire, that is what fuels Paul's joy. He says, I'm so, I'm so full of joy right now because you know what? I'm tangibly seeing, even in these difficult times, how God's using them to lift up Jesus. I can see even if, even if I were to die, Jesus would be exalted. And Paul emphasizes that thought in his well-known statement in verse 21. Again, say it with me. You guys know this. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. That, brothers and sisters, that is the essence of Christianity. <laughs> it's crystallized there for us. Eleven words in the English, nine in the Greek. That's it. That's it. That's what our lives should look like. And that is what, when we gather together on Sunday, we are to be aiming ourselves towards. That this time together is to help move us in that direction. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a commitment that goes beyond religion. You know what I mean by religion, right? It's a commitment that goes beyond activity, that goes beyond ritual, that goes beyond tradition. In fact, Jesus said it clearly in Luke chapter 9. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will Lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he says, will save it. It's essentially Philippians 121. Jesus demands complete surrender. Jesus requires that we lose our lives for his sake. 
He says, uh, if you're to be my follower, my disciple, a believer, then you need to take up your cross daily. And again, we know what that meant, right? We know what those words meant to those listening to him. Person taking up his cross meant he's carrying a cross, meant he was going about, about ready to die, to be nailed on that cross. And Jesus was saying in those words, you have to have a daily willingness to die for me if that's what would glorify and lift up Jesus. And my life is to be used in whatever way God deems fit to exalt his son. He made me. He made you, right? We've been created by God. He can use us however he wants. And a commitment to follow Christ is a commitment to say, yes, forgive me for going my own way. I want to go the way you want me to go. And this is not only what Christ demanded of an apostle. It wasn't just Paul's responsibility. Right. It wasn't it isn't just something that he requires from uh, the super saints, those who have known him for a long time, uh, the super godly. There's no uh, category of disciple, capital D for the special believer. Right. This is something that is a commitment that he desires and requires to see in every believer. Amen. Every one of us. Jesus is saying, if, if you wish to come after me, I'm not interested in a bystander here. I'm not interested in someone who's going to give part-time worship. I'm not interested in a partial commitment. I want all of you or none of you. It's an all-or-nothing deal. Is that term all in? It's all in. I'm not endorsing gambling in any way, just using a, a reference that we all understand what that means, okay? But it is. It's all in. That's how missionary Jim Elliott That's how he understood what it meant to follow Christ. He was a young man who was very gifted. Many of you may remember him. He was a young man who had the great skills, and he was encouraged even to go into some type of work, great oratory skills, encouraged to be an actor, even go into business or, or marketing or something like that. But he made a decision that instead of pursuing a business career, instead of pursuing an acting career, he made a decision that he would dedicate his life to preach Christ to a remote tribe in Ecuador. And after several years of preparation, after several years of learning the language and getting ready and even doing translation work, he and a few other men camped out on a beach not far from the village of that tribe. But their plans to reach this tribe for Christ had ended even before they started, for a group of warriors from that village came out onto the beach and hacked Jim Elliot and his co-workers to death. So, my question to you is, was his life a waste? Not in Jesus' eyes. By life and by death. He magnified Christ. He left a, a wife and a young daughter. I think she wasn't even two years old yet. And actually, they ended up returning to the same tribe with the gospel not long after that. And many came to Christ. And so those who Jim Elliott did not even get a chance to share Jesus with, he's now met some of them because of his commitment to magnify Christ. Now, this kind of commitment sounds scary. It is scary, isn't it? But beloved... That's what real Christianity looks like. It centers not on on principles, but on a person. 
It's not just a list of convictions. It's a commitment to be His. It's all about Jesus. And when you come and confess your sins to Him, when you seek His forgiveness, when you desire to turn from that sin and put your trust in Him, He gets all of you. He gets every part. Again, all ends, all or nothing. And He gets to use your life however He sees fit. When Paul says to live as Christ, he's saying that. Whatever Jesus wants me to do, whatever He wants me to say, wherever He wants me to go, I'm there. He's my strength. He's my affection. He's my joy. He's my purpose in life. He's the meaning of life. He's my example. He's my object of worship. He's my God. He's my life, Paul is saying. And Jim Elliot said by what he did. When Paul says to live as Christ, he says to die is gain. Even if I die, if I die, it's even better because I'm with him. I realized fully the prize, the treasure. And think about that. In death, we suffering's gone, but no longer do we have the sin and distraction. It gets in the way of a perfect fellowship with God. Paul says, so if I die, that's that's a good thing. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Now that all that all sounds well and good, but how do you get to that kind of a mindset? Do you, do you want to be there? I mean, I do. I want to be able to say with conviction what Paul said, to live as Christ and to die as gain. But how do you get there? How do we get to that place? How do we obtain such a a radical perspective? Well, we find the answer in chapter 3. So flip over to Philippians chapter 3. As you probably noticed, and I know we talked about last time we were in Philippians, that, that this letter is more than just an expression of Paul's gratitude for the gift that he was given. Indeed, he was, he was encouraged by their gift. He was especially encouraged because it allowed for the gospel to continue, for his ministry to continue in proclaiming the gospel. And as he conveys his joy in seeing the gospel advance, Paul also takes the opportunity in this letter to let them know about some things that could hinder the gospel. And one of the things he emphasizes significantly in this letter, especially in chapters 2 and chapter 4, is that one hindrance is disunity within the body of Christ. That's a huge hindrance. Appreciated uh, Pastor David Haig's message yesterday to to us men. You remember he talked about unity into that way and just the importance of that. Well, Paul emphasizes that in Philippians as well. And disunity is a hindrance to the gospel. He also gives a second hindrance and it's found sandwiched between chapters 2 and 4 in chapter 3. And that second hindrance to the gospel is relying on good works to be saved. It's relying on our own efforts to be right with God. Paul warns them in verse 3, of chapter 3 of a group of heretics that were running around saying, yeah, you know, Jesus is fine, but, but he's not enough. You need to keep the law. You need to follow the commandments of Moses if you want to be right before God. And Paul says in the first six verses here, you know what? I've tried that. I have achieved. You know, if you go down to the temple today and you look at the list, the top 40, I'm at the top of the list. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was a super of Pharisee. They still talk about me in the halls. I still set the record for the most verses memorized. Record that will never be broken. Paul said, I was, I was there. I was a keeper of the law. I was a super keeper of the law. Super duper keeper of the law. I was a Pharisee par excellence. 
I gained a high standing before God, he says. Or so I thought. We see in verse 7, notice what he says there. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In those verses, we see Philippians 1, 21, essentially, just worded a little differently. Notice Paul even uses the word gain here, as he did back there in Philippians 1, 21. Here in 3, 7, he says that, 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 that when he, what he used to see as gain, what he used to see as profitable, were his own achievements, his own efforts to be right before God. That's what he used to see as gain. But now, he says, now, now I know those efforts actually were not gain. But more than that, actually, they weren't even good. But more than that, even, they were bad, really bad. Not in and of themselves, but they were bad because how I relied on them to be right before God, to be justified before Him. So they were lost. They were uh, damage. They were a forfeiture. That word loss, it's the same root word that, from which Jesus said, um, to gain the whole world but lose your soul. There we see the idea of gain and loss. And Paul here doesn't say that Jesus is merely something better. No, he says he is gain, he is, he is profit, he is valuable, as opposed to, to loss, as opposed to bankruptcy of the soul. And notice in verse 8, more than that, Paul says, everything is lost. Everything is lost. Everything is nothing in comparison to what? What does it say in verse 8? The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, or the knowledge of Christ, my Lord. And so he says at the end of verse 8, I gladly have suffered the loss of everything to gain Christ. There it is again, to live as Christ Notice, again, what he saw is more valuable than anything else. More valuable than anything else was a surpassing worth of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord. That a relationship with the Son of God. Verse 7, or excuse me, verse 9, Paul spells out what that looks like in further detail as he says, and look there with me, verse 9, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. These verses here are an expansion on what the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord looks like. They give us and describe to us in greater detail how we can get to the place of to live as Christ and to die as gain. What's the overarching theme here in these verses, in verses 8 to 11? What's Paul's focus? If you want to be somebody whose motto in life is to live as Christ and to die as gain, then you need to be captivated by the same thing that captivated Paul. You need to be consumed by the same thing that consumed Paul. You need to embrace that which Paul embraced, which is what? What do you say? The, the greatest thing in my life, the the most valuable effort I could make, the, the supreme, the surpassing value, the focus of my existence is knowing Christ. It's to orient my life around that relationship. It's to direct my thoughts, my attentions, my efforts, my purpose in life to know Him. 
And I hope you can see in, in looking at these things, can you see why Paul could say to live as Christ and to die as gain? Could you see why he saw death even as a noble sacrifice? Could you see why he would do this even gladly? Again, the tone in Philippians isn't, you know, Christ has done all these things for me, so, I, you know, I need to do these things for him. Is his tone one of resignation that, well, I owe him. <laughs> you know, I'm in prison here and, you know, I can see God's using that. You know, that's just the way it is. Is that his attitude? Or is it, yes, I am so thankful and I rejoice at what God's doing in my life. You don't hear any hint here of, woe is me, do you? You hear a hint of, I am grateful, thankful that God is working in me in this way and using me in this way. It's profound. And how is it that he could have that attitude? How is it that he could suffer these things with joy? How is it he could say whether by life or by death, it's all for Christ? It's because he found a greater treasure. He found a greater value. And that's why this letter is so full of joy. Because he found someone worth his life and his affection. Knowing Christ was his pursuit. And, and this knowing, and you understand this, right? This knowing was more than just the intellectual knowledge. It was the experience of relationship with him. And we see that not only in the meaning of the word for knowledge, gnosis here, which is the idea of information, but also as an experiential component. But, but we also see it when he says there, Christ Jesus, my Lord. He could have said Christ Jesus, the Lord, or Christ Jesus, but he says Christ Jesus, my Lord. He does that intentionally here. Communicate that the relationship. Paul had discovered the secret, brothers and sisters. He uncovered the mystery of life. Which really isn't a mystery at all because Jesus was very plain about it. John seventeen three, he said, this is eternal life. This is the essence of life. This is the purpose of life, the meaning of life, the ultimate, the ultimate experience in life. This is eternal life to know to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So Paul describes here that, that there's only one pursuit in life, and that pursuit is a person. And he says in verse 8 again, I, I count everything else, everything else as lost, as, as rubbish, he says, as trash, dung. I'm walking away from it all to gain Christ. And then he adds to be found in him, to know him. In fact, those three phrases in verses 8, 9, and 10, to gain Christ, to be found in Him, to know Him, those are all uh, interconnected. They all describe the knowledge of Christ and what it involves. It is first to gain Him, that is to, to have Him. And then he says, and adds to that in verse 9, it is also to be found in Him. That is to, that's this idea he's communicating of this intimacy with Him, this, this being in Him. He liked to use that phrase a lot in his, in his letters, to be in Christ, to be in Him. To identify with him. And notice in verse 9 what he says there. Being found in him. Having that intimate relationship and connection to him. Not with my own righteousness. I don't have this relationship. I don't stand before God on my own merits. Right? He totally ignored the, the top 40 list that was posted on the temple. Okay, there really wasn't a list there. But you, you, know, you got my point, right? He said, that, that, that doesn't matter. I don't care about that. In fact, that didn't even help me. In fact, that was bad that I was even thinking it could help me pursuing it on my own. But he's given me his righteousness. He's given me himself. Knowing Christ is to understand that 
It is in His righteousness that I am seen by God. It is by His grace alone that I can stand before God. That it is by Christ's blood alone that I can have a relationship with Him. Beloved, I, I know we talk about this a lot. In fact, you might be saying, you know, Tim, have you dusted off an old sermon here? I've heard you say this before. Were you cheating this week? Were you out golfing all week and then just, you know, picked out an old one to... No, I didn't do that. But yeah, I am saying the same thing because it's so important. Paul brings it up so often. We have to remind ourselves of these truths. There's no condemnation when you're found in Christ. How often do you tell yourself that? That you can stand before him without blame. Not because of yourself, but only because Jesus bled out for you. How often do you tell yourself that he has given you a right standing before God? How often do you remind yourself that his deeds apply to your account? Yeah, Tim, I've heard that. I I know that. I understand that. But how often do you remind yourself of that? And Paul here again takes the opportunity to say to be found in him, not having my own righteousness. And I think he's teaching us here a very important truth, a very important thing for us. And that is to, again, remind ourselves of what Christ has done, that we live in light of that. In verse 10, he He adds, in addition to gaining Christ and being found in him, Paul says that I may know him and he clarifies that and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He's telling us here that that knowing Christ is to dwell on the power of his resurrection, specifically the sin freeing power of his resurrection. Paul referred often to the power of his resurrection and in light of that power being demonstrated and sin being broken in our lives. If we are his. In fact, he said in Romans 6, 5, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And he says, in addition to that, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Again, I think we even heard that verse yesterday, men's conference. We hear it often spoken about, but again, Be reminded that how frequently do you bring these things to mind? That if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, how frequently do you remember the power of his resurrection and what that death and resurrection has accomplished for you? How often do you remind yourself that you've been freed from sin? Stop there a minute. (laughs) Those, Those handcuffs are broken. They're gone. That's what, when Jesus rose from the dead... The power of that resurrection was an emphatic, was God's exclamation point on, I accept his sacrifice and the power of sin in the life of those who believe and trust in Christ is gone. It's broken. No more enslavement to sin. We still struggle with it. The temptations are still there. But you don't have to follow it. You're not a slave to it anymore. It's constantly remembering that not only do you stand before God in Christ's righteousness, but also that you are empowered to obey him. Paul adds in verse 10, this idea of suffering. Notice he says there that it's a fellowship, sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. That is to know his afflictions experientially. Well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, he's saying here, as you, as you suffer persecution, as you go through trials because of your relationship with Jesus Christ... You are more deeply and profoundly connected to him. You identify with him in an experiential way. You, you understand at least a little bit of what he went through 
And as you go through life, even just difficulties, living in this life, Jesus encountered the same things, didn't he? He became a man as like us. He did not sin, but he still encountered all the struggles that we have in our human flesh. Fatigue and hunger and annoying relatives. He went through all that too. And as you go through that, and as you maintain your commitment to follow Him and to obey God, just as Jesus did, He maintained a commitment to be in the will of the Father at all times in His life. And as you do that, even if you're not being persecuted, you are suffering for Christ. You're making the same commitment that He made, that I'm going to do what God wants me to do no matter what. Dear Madeline has made that commitment that she is suffering physically, but still holding on to her trust in Jesus. And in that, she's suffering for Christ. So when we do that, we understand a little more and have a closer connection with Jesus. And especially when we suffer persecution in His name. So in light of verses 8 through 11, we see that that Paul here refers to the knowledge of Christ or, or knowing Christ. He, he's saying something more than just rehearsing Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He's, he's showing us that it is, it is that and it is more than that. As you, the knowledge of Him. It is more than just that information, right? It's communing with Him. It's, it's learning Him. It is following His example. It's relying on Him when times are difficult and when they're good. Trusting in Him. It's meditating and reflecting on His gospel of grace. And I love Paul's example here that he reminds us to meditate on God's grace. That it is by His righteousness that I can stand before God. It's something He gave me, not because of me. Something He gave you, not because of you. It's His grace. And Paul said, keep reminding yourself of that. Remember that. It's important. It's identifying with what He suffered as we suffer. It is to live in holy fellowship with him as attained through his death. These, these, all of these things are part of this lifelong pursuit of Christ, of, of gaining him. And I chose that word pursuit on purpose because knowing Jesus is not a passive activity. It's not uh, something where you just sit back and, and wait. It's not, you know, if I show up each week, I sit in a pew and then the Holy Zap's going to come at some point. I'm just got to wait him out. Right? It's not being the couch potato Christian just sitting there flicking the remote, just waiting for God to do something. It's not passive at all. First hour I thought that was funny. I guess I didn't, I didn't say it the same way. <laughs> right? But that's not the picture. We don't picture Paul there kicking back, his feet up in the chair, watching whatever's on the you know latest version of television. Of course, he didn't have that, but you know what I'm talking about. That wasn't the way he approached or saw. That wasn't his mindset, was it? And it shouldn't be ours. We are not remote control, couch potato Christians. We are to be those actively seeking to pursue and cultivate that relationship. Right? Because relationships take effort, don't they? Guys are going, what, really? <laughs> no kidding. That's what, yeah. They take effort, don't they? They take effort, resolve, commitment. And we see that in verse 12. Notice he says, not that I have already obtained it yet or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that which for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. 
toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's the tone here? I'll just wait and see what God does. Is that what you see here? Oh, you see this. I press on. I reach forward. I press on. I pursue. I push. I strain. There's, There's effort here. These are potent words. They're describing an effort that Paul is making in this pursuit of the knowledge of Christ to know him. That word I press on is a it's a running term. It means to, to run after, to zealously pursue after, to, to move rapidly and decisively towards. Like right when your kid grabs your remote, runs off with it, right? You chase him down. I don't know, I'm stuck on remotes today. But you're going, where's the... Anyway, okay. Right, but it's that idea of pursuit, of effort, running after. And notice the verb is present tense here. I press on. I'm pressing on. That's a, I'm doing that consistently and frequently. It's a zealous pursuit, an ongoing pursuit, because this is a marathon. I run and I run and I run and I run. And if you've ever done a marathon, that's exactly what it feels like. You're just running and running. You keep going and going. You keep pushing yourself to reach that goal. And that's what Paul talking about here to run with all my strength to know jesus and that strain and that effort effort is is emphasized not just by the fact he repeats it again i press on but also too in that word those words he uses reaching forward to what lies ahead that reaching forward it has the idea more of just stretching out your hand to to grab something it's this idea of straining this idea of stretching, like if, if your child had fallen over a cliff and they're hanging on a branch, you were stretching with all your might to grab him. Almost to the point of your arm coming out of your socket, right? there. That's the picture here. There's effort, exertion. It's this forceful struggle, an earnest endeavor. It's an intense, straining pursuit that Paul is emphasizing here. Then in verses 15 and 17... Paul moves his direction. In the first half of this chapter, he'd been focusing on himself and just his own journey, his own testimony, and how he had moved from, you know, the Pharisee top ten in order to realizing that was not, that was lost. He talks about gaining Christ. He talks about his effort in pursuing to know Christ. And then he, the pastor in him, clicks in and he says, what about you? Verse 15, he says, let us therefore have this attitude. Verse 16, he says, let us keep living by the same standard. Verse 17, he says, brethren, join in following my example. Again, he's not patting himself on the back here. He's saying, God has done this work in me and moved me in this place. Follow in the example that is using me. Do the same thing. And by this, he's not saying necessarily that sell everything, take on the life of a missionary in a hostile territory and, you know, preach the gospel there. And that, that could be, and it is for some, but, but the point he's making is, what are you reaching for? What are you striving after? What are you pressing on in your life to pursue? What consumes your thoughts? What is it that, that receives your attention? Think about your day. Think about what you think about. Think about what you are focused on and where your efforts lie. What about your passion? What are you pursuing? So, beloved, in line with Paul's tone and I think with his wishes here, let, let me ask you, how would you complete Philippians 1.21? For me to live is, 
Honestly, how would you fill that in? For me to live is family. For me to to live is life is all about having things. For me to live is pleasure, hobbies, entertainment, work, success in business. For me to live is achievement in school. That's a rare one, but there are some that have that. Is there? <laughs> to me, to live is to pursue happiness, to comfort, ease. For me to live is what? How would you fill in the rest of that statement? Again, honestly. We know what the answer should be, right? For me to live is, is Christ. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, there has to be an and. For me to live is Christ and family. For me to live is, is Christ and success. For me to live is Christ and comfort. For me to live is Christ and popularity, money. We, for me to live is Christ and what? And I think we all have an and. I know I do. You remember Paul's Damascus Road experience? You remember what he saw there? Remember what happened to that? That wasn't a one-time experience. That wasn't just an, an event. It was life-altering. Beloved, what, what did you see on your Damascus Road? Who did you see there? Has life just kind of continued on? And Jesus is a part of it now. And there's some good things about that. And he... He's a part of the life that I went on, or was it life-altering? Did he change the course of your life? For the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's it's more than a message about how you can escape hell. I'm thankful that's part of it, but it's more than that. It's the work of Christ It does more than just take away guilt for your sin. Again, a wonderful thing, but it's more than that. It achieves something more, much greater than just going to heaven after you die. Again, a wonderful gift. It's more than a message about being forgiven. Indeed, the gospel gives us all these things, and thankfully so, but it gives us so much more because in the gospel, you have gained something. You've gained someone. You have gained Christ. You have gained Him. A relationship with Him. You, if, if you recognize that you are a sinner, if you recognize, understand, believe that you've rebelled against Him, that, that you deserve the punishment of hell, separation from Him for eternity for that sin. If you confess that, if you desire to, to turn from that and, and to trust in Him and to follow Him, if you accept that it's only by His death on the cross that you can be forgiven, if you embrace these truths, if you make a commitment to follow Him no matter what, then you have found a pearl of infinite value, a pearl of great price. It's in your possession because Jesus, if I could say it this way, is in your possession. You've found a treasure. You've obtained Him for eternity. So when we gather together on Sunday, His day, the Lord's day, That's what we are to celebrate. He is who we celebrate. Jesus is who we worship. And so as we sing together, as we pray with one another, as we spend time in fellowship and communion, baptisms, as we observe those and are encouraged by them, as we listen to sermons and talk about them, and these acts of worship, these are opportunities to exalt Christ. And if I could say something about that, you know, I think at times we have this attitude of we come to give, that there are things that we owe Christ, 
that there's our responsibility now as Christians that part of what I do now is I come and I, I sing to him and I do these other things because he's done all this for me, so I need to do things to him for him in return, right? And there is a sense, obviously, he deserves our praise and our honor, right? He deserves to be exalted through us. But we have to remember, I think, a very important but sometimes subtly overlooked thing. We, we come and give these things not because we owe them to him. They're actually a means to receive something from him, to receive him. You understand my point? That it's not that we're coming to give, but in reality, we, we come to receive because finding that joy and contentment and satisfaction in Christ is why He died, to honor the Father so that we may have fellowship with Him and intimacy, a unity with, with God. Again, I just feel like this morning I'm saying so many things that we hear a lot, but do we really, do we really understand them? Capture them. We gather Sunday to focus on Jesus and his gospel so that we're reminded of the treasure we have been given. So that we would press on to pursue being like Christ. So that we would better fix our eyes upon him as the writer of Hebrews talked about. So that we would strive to know him. So that we would pursue him. So that we would enjoy him. So that we'd be satisfied in him. Content in him. So that we would love him more fully. That's what coming to Sundays, that's what gathering together, that's what it's intended to drive us towards, to motivate us towards. And it is in those things that we will see Jesus magnified in us. It is in those things that, that as Paul or Jim Elliot or so many other saints before us have seen, it is in those things that we will be able to echo His words, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Let's pray. Oh Lord, magnify Yourself through me, through us. Use us, Lord, as a telescope to the world, to our families. Empower us. And we need your Spirit to do this, to empower us to strive earnestly to know you and to live for you, to strive to know about all that Jesus has said, all that he has done, and, and to know him. Lord, give us the passion of your servant, Paul. What, what a testimony. What an example. Lord, I know he wasn't gloating, but just declaring your praises and the work you've done in his life. And in that he rejoiced. And Lord, give us that same passion and, and keep us from sin, Lord. Those things which, which hinder us from pressing on towards you. Those things that, that mar the relationship with Christ. Exposing us anything, Lord, that... That is loss. Let us not walk away from from this message, Lord. Let us not walk away from this truth and and not seriously, Lord, give consideration to for me to live is is what? Is it truly Christ? And if not, work in us, Lord, so that it would be, so that that is how our sentence would end. And to add to that, to die is gain. All that we would magnify your Son, the Magnificent One. In His name we pray. Amen.